we constantly come to the Bible as though it were primarily an instruction manual on how to live, we'll make examples to follow out of everyone we see and everything we see. And, and if that's the case, we'll see the Bible uh, as a challenge, really, to be a better person, which doesn't need Jesus at all, right? Rather than um, a testimony to us of the only person who was actually good at all and how he came to save us and how desperately we need such a gracious salvation. We are not meant to read the Bible or to read the Bible as a book about us, but as a book about Jesus for us. The Bible is not only a book of promises made by God to sinners, but promises kept by God for sinners. And so scripture basically begins in Genesis 3, 14 through 15 with the promise that a son would be born who would conquer Satan, God's mortal enemy, and the one whose temptation began the curse on all humanity. But one of the most amazing parts of the Christmas story is the promise that this son, whose name we find would be called Jesus, would be born of a virgin. Now, if the first thing that strikes us in that promise is the virgin, we've missed the point entirely. Now, I will say that as Protestants, we're afraid, it seems sometimes, of exalting Mary, that we forget how amazing of a young woman she was. But even so, she is not the point of the promise. Why is it significant that Jesus would be born of a virgin? Is Mary an example of purity? Right? Is that what matters the most about her being a virgin? What we need to be then in order for God to visit us, to come to us, or is it something else entirely? So let's take some time this morning to focus on the role of this specific promise that was given to God's people in the book of Isaiah and fulfilled through the birth of Jesus Christ. The Christmas story is wrapped up in the revelation that God was not going to save the world the way anyone would think. He doesn't work in ways that are expected. His wisdom looks like foolishness to the world. His power looks like weakness to the world. And this is intentional. It's intentional. And nothing reveals it, these things, as clearly as the birth of Jesus by way of a virgin. And in this, we find hope in our foolishness, and in our weakness. As Philip Bartelt says, God does not enact his plan to conquer Satan with might or with power, but with the weakness of a tiny baby. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promise concerning your Son, our Lord, our Shepherd, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word and believe it. I pray, Father, that your spirit would speak to us, help us discern the truth, help us see. And so, Father, for your name, for your renown in our hearts, Lord, for the faith and joy of your people and the salvation of all of us, we ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you would help me preach, Father. Amen. I mean, let me read the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 7. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, 
came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear, Joshua, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Not too long after Isaiah was called to be a prophet, the kingdom of Judah and their king Ahaz were confronted with wars and Rumors of wars. In verse 2, when Ahaz and his people heard that the enemies of Syria and Ephraim were mustering against them, their hearts shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were terrified. And God sees and God hears. And in response to their fear, God sends his prophet Isaiah to give words of comfort in the form of a prophecy. So Isaiah takes his son, Shear Joshib, whose name, by the way, means... A remnant shall remain and goes out to meet King Ahaz and tell him, do not fear. He gives words of encouragement to Ahaz to settle his soul. Yes, Ephraim and Syria are plotting against Ahaz, but what they plan to do will not happen. Syria will not succeed. Ephraim will be destroyed. And listen to what Isaiah tells Ahaz in verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God's word of promise to Ahaz ends with a call to faith, to believe in what God has said, to trust that God will continue to hear him and protect his remnant. If Ahaz does not have faith, though, he has nothing, which means if he does have faith, he has everything. Faith is the only proper response to God's promise. But Ahaz doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. He's still afraid, even after these words of comfort from Isaiah. But in his mercy, God speaks to him again to give him a sign of his covenant love and his faithfulness. Pick it up in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, that is Isaiah, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Notice how God speaks to Ahaz in his doubt. He promises to give Ahaz any sign that he asks for. Just think about that. Any sign there. No sign is too big. No sign is too small. If it will convince Ahaz that God is telling the truth, then God will provide it. This is 
the ultimate moment for humanity. This is what humanity always says God has to do in order to be believed, right? Show us a sign. But Ahaz doesn't bite. He doesn't. In fact, Ahaz tries to outrighteous God. This is hysterical. God tells him to ask for whatever he wants, and Ahaz tells God that he's not allowed to put the Lord to the test. It sounds pious. It's horribly arrogant, given the circumstances. This is the same God that said, do not put me to the test, now telling him, Ask me whatever you want and I'll show you. Where God gives grace, we do not come back with law, beloved. Ever. Ever. Why would we think ourselves so righteous as if God needs reminded of what we are and are not allowed to be doing? God is bigger than being put into these boxes. It won't work. It never does. For this one moment, God gives Ahaz the biggest wish imaginable. Any sign you want, I'll perform it. I'll prove myself that clearly. Turn my thumb orange. All right, your thumb's orange, right? Didn't matter what it is, God said he would do it. Why wouldn't Ahaz take God up on it? Think about that. Why wouldn't he take him up on it? It's not that Ahaz is too righteous to ask for this sign. There's a reason that Ahaz... Ahaz's response wearies God in verse 13 because God sees right through his alleged piety. He doesn't believe that God will protect his remnant. So why ask for a sign? It's wearisome to God that people refuse to believe him. It would cause Jesus to grieve in his soul when he would look out, proclaim the word of God, and people wouldn't Believe it's wearisome to God to the point of anger, beloved, we find in the Gospels and elsewhere. He didn't believe God would do what he said, that he would protect his remnant. No, 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 we're all going to be wiped out. There's no reason to ask for a sign. God doesn't see. He doesn't care. Right in the midst of God speaking. So what does God do? He gives one anyway. Verse 14, therefore. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This was God's way of proving that he would keep his word. This is the sign that God picked. In response to the unbelief of Ahaz, God gives an absolutely inconceivable promise that won't even be fulfilled in the lifetime of Ahaz, not entirely. A virgin shall conceive and have a son, and the name of this child will be God with us. What does God promise? God promises that he himself will come down as a human being. That is what the promise of the virgin birth is, beloved, when you read it in context. It's a response to a man who does not believe God wants to save. God says, not only will I keep my promise to save, I will do it by sending God the Son in human flesh. And to make sure you know it's Him, He will be conceived in the womb of a virgin. Something that no human being can perform. We cannot create ex nihilo, out of nothing. Only God can do that. We require raw materials to build, to create. God requires God, His voice, to create, to give life. 
a virgin cannot conceive on her own. Beloved Isaiah 7 then, in the promise of a son, a child, is when God clarifies how he will accomplish the original promise of Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Thousands of years, remember, by the time of Isaiah and Ahaz have passed since Genesis 3. There has yet to be born the son or a son born to a woman who was capable of saving the world. They haven't found such a savior yet. Even the best of men have sinned. They have fallen. Even the best of men are wicked, it turns out. And even the best of men, all men, end up dying. The savior promised has not been revealed by the time of Ahaz. And Ahaz doubts that God wants to save. That's what suffering and war and the rumors of war and all these things will do to our hearts. It will make us question the most foundational promises God has ever made. Will he save? Will he save me? Right? Will he return? Is it true? Does he see? Does he hear? Ahaz doubts that God wants to save. And God answers him by reiterating the original promise of a seed, a child, from Genesis 3. How will a son, capable of crushing the serpent's head and putting into evil, ever be born when everyone is tainted by evil? When everyone is tainted by sin and death? Imagine the cynicism about the promise of God that builds over time in the human heart. Think of King Ahaz, Ephraim, Syria, right on his doorstep, about to attack. That's what's real. That's what you can see. That's what you can hear. What has God done? God has spoken into that, given a promise. It is much harder to believe a word that has been spoken than it is to believe that the army standing right in front of you is not going to attack you. That's what you can see, right? That's what you can hear. That's what you can feel. How can one that is good enough to enact God's saving promise ever be born of a woman? If, 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 if a son is born who is not tainted by Adam's DNA, that'd be the only hope. Well, how do you get that? Right? It takes two to tango. Right? How do you not get the DNA of Adam? If God not only speaks to us, but comes to us to be with us. Jesus being conceived by a virgin, remember this, beloved, is a sign to us of how committed God actually is to keeping the promises he has made. How do I know then, let's make it personal, how do I know God really wants to and will finally save me. How do I know this? How do you and I know this in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a country that is extremely unstable? How do we know that God will keep his promise to me? I look to the conception of his son 2,000 years ago in the womb of a girl who had never been with a man as a sign of not just his indescribable power, but the certainty, the irrevocability of which, by which he will keep his promises. That's how I know God will save me. 
because Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin. Beloved, God has already given us the signs that we need to know whether or not he's real, whether or not he's telling us the truth. That's the primary thing the Bible is doing. It's not challenging you to live a certain kind of life. It's telling you what is required of you and the fact that you can't do it and the Savior that has come to be your substitute who did do it, so believe in Him. That's the point of Scripture. That's the point of the promise. Not to get you to do something, but to believe something. The Bible tells us who God is and what God has done. And every promise in this book is sufficient to hold our soul steady when the words that bring fear and doubt and threaten us come into our lives. When the news that threatens our stability and makes us afraid comes into our lives. We go back to the very same promises God's people have always had and always believed in. The truth never changes. It's not gray. It's black and it's white. You believe it or you don't, but the promise stands. And that's what we have. In this way, unbelieving Ahaz is all of us this morning. He's the whole world in one sense this morning. God is disregarded. He's mocked by an unbelieving world. Cynical, struggling believers don't even take God's word seriously anymore. We aren't asking for things anymore, not because we don't want anything, not because we don't need anything, but I wonder if it's largely because we're struggling to even believe that God is there or that God cares anymore. Time creates cynicism. It creates doubt. But God has given a sign anyway. Beloved, when we doubt God's character, we need to remember His promises. We need to remember that when we are faithless, He remains faithful. That the promise of Jesus' birth was not made to, think about this, a holy, righteous man who lived right and believed every word that God spoke. It was given to a man who, upon hearing God's promise to save, said, yeah, I I don't think so, I'm not interested. No, I, I... I won't even ask for a sign. Beloved, this is the truth then on which to hang every inch of our souls. The God of Scripture, the God of heaven and earth, of all things, is more committed to saving us than you and I are to believing, and therefore we will be saved. God is more committed to saving than you and I are to believing, Therefore, we will be saved. That's what the promise of a virgin birth is meant to show. Not only God's amazing power that can cause a virgin to conceive a baby in her womb by the overshadowing work of the Holy Spirit, but God's amazing commitment to save us, even though we can't drum up the faith to keep believing in Him. God has made a promise to save His remnant. That's what he's going to do. Ahaz's lack of faith didn't change God's mind. It didn't make God too weary with humanity to act. 
God's salvation is the foundational promise he gave to all humanity in the garden. And not even our cynicism will derail his word. What Isaiah reveals is that God is going to bring about the birth of this promised son in such a miraculous way. That the child will not only be capable of saving because he's not tainted by Adam. But that God will never break his promise to crush Satan's head and redeem mankind. No matter how far off the rails you and I go. Think about all your life and the time you spent believing. It's up and it's down. It's never constant. It's up, it's down. You walk forward, you walk back. God's power to cause a virgin to conceive is evidence to you and I that he can hold us steady in his hand in the midst of all of that. God acts unilaterally to save people, not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, but because he is God and apparently that's what God does. That's good news. God made the wisdom of the world and the reasoning of humans foolish with this promise. Right? He, he, he won't even let us contribute in the birth of the Messiah. He accomplishes the salvation of rebels who think they're too smart or too good by doing something so miraculous that in spite of all their wisdom and ingenuity, they can't replicate that. I always love it when people create something in a lab and then say, see... We, we can do it too. No, you needed a lab. You, you didn't do it out of nothing, noob. You needed a lab, right? You, you used raw materials. Like, like, like what's, what's the, I can't even think of the, the big machine over in Europe that proved you, evolution can be true. Yeah, you made it. You made that thing do what you wanted it to do. It's, it's, salvation is free. It costs nothing. And we reject it. God comes to us with a promise. I will save you. I will forgive all of your sins. Ask me. No. No. No, I, I, I don't get anything for free. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I work for what I get. Well, then you'll suffer eternal condemnation. Right? I mean, beloved, what's wrong with us? Do you see what's wrong with us? Who doesn't want this gift? Do we realize how big of a problem pride is? That it causes us to reject the promise of God to just save. So what is God showing us in things like, I'll cause a virgin to conceive. I'm going to save you anyway. I'm going to do the work Anyway, that is precisely the amount of grace you and I need to ever finally be saved. It will never be our sweat, our works, our effort, our time, our money. Those things will never merit salvation. Ever. If God doesn't say, I'm going to keep my promise, you and I will not be saved. Period. God accomplishes our, salva- our, our salvation then through the lowliest and most scandalous ways. Why does he do that? God doesn't care that humans don't respect obscure little towns like Bethlehem. 
He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care that they don't respect a virgin betrothed to an unknown man. Of course, people are going to laugh at that and talk down on it and make fun of it. Of course they are. God can come to a king and say, ask me to do whatever you want and I'll do it. And the king will say, no, I'm not going to do it because you shouldn't put the Lord to the test. See, that's not believing the Lord. That's believing something outside of the Lord. God doesn't care that the story doesn't add up. Right? He doesn't care that we know babies can't be conceived by a virgin. That's the whole thing about the virgin, or that's the whole thing about conception, isn't it? It requires two parties. So if there's a baby, something happened. And God says, no, not necessarily. Not for the God of promise, that's not the case. He's not bound by this. See, when God wants to save, what does he do? He acts outside of what is natural by doing what is supernatural. That's how salvation comes. That's how it's received. Nobody's going to believe unless they are drawn to believe. Nobody. The the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are spiritually discerned. There are people right now listening that think I am an idiot For what I'm saying, not because I'm better than them, but because until God opens their eyes, they cannot believe it. They cannot see it. It is foolishness to them. This idea. What is foolishness? The cross. The the idea that salvation comes completely by God's proclamation of you being saved because you believed what his son did. That's absurd. Well, to us. We think it's meritorious to earn everything. Well, if that's how you think, you can never be saved. The most important thing a human being can gain, a human being cannot possibly earn. The virgin conceiving is not just a testament of God's power then, but of the fact that God is not concerned with what you and I can bring to the table. The conception of Jesus is God saying to humanity, listen, salvation will be obtained by me and I will give it to those who simply believe that I did it. There was a promise to crush the serpent's head, remember? And as we saw last week, it was not only the death of the promised child that confounded Satan. Now we see it's the means of the child's birth that also confounds Satan. The life of Jesus on earth from conception to resurrection then is God's conquering of Satan. He undoes Satan's scheme from start to finish. He puts a man right in the middle of creation. A man that if he disobeys cannot be our sacrifice. And if the one born of a virgin can't do it, nobody can do it. And God dares Satan in a sense. I won't just give you a moment in a garden. I'll give you a whole lifetime. Do your worst. And the son does not give in. God does not enact his plan to conquer Satan with might and with power, but with the weakness of a tiny baby. And, and here's the thing, even more amazing than that. It's, it's not a glorious vessel that carries the child that is born into the world. It's a lowly virgin girl from Nazareth. If you're looking back at Genesis, 
when this child is finally born, who is his mother going to be? Who are the parents going to be? Surely the mightiest and the most renowned, right? No, 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 no. A girl between 12 and 14 years old. We'll do it with her. We'll have her conceive in her womb and give birth to this child. Pregnant before wedlock. Shamed because of it, most certainly. Think God thought, well, I I can't say that way. It'll look bad. Well, of course, the people who think they're too righteous to need salvation and they can just constantly judge, it will look bad. Not to people who are desperate for saving. They'll take it however they can get it. God turned every machination of Satan against him. You see, everything the snake could use to cast doubt on God's word, God worked in it. If there's shame, if there's, you know, if the story's shady, it won't work. God said, no, I'll, I'll do it with shame and I'll make the story so shady, it's impossible to ever believe it. And watch what I do. Watch what I do. God undid Satan using his own schemes. It was Satan, remember, who brought shame into the world. It was Satan who cast doubt on God's word and God's care for human beings. And God went to the lowest place, to the least recognizable, the most despised, to perform something so amazing that only he could take credit for it. Because remember, it's not the king who believes God's word. It's the virgin girl from Nazareth. When she hears God's promise, she believes and confesses. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's what Ahaz should have said. Okay. All right, let it be to me according to your word. Whatever you say is what happens. I trust you. Mary... Her response, I, I, I don't know how, but I know who. If anyone can make this happen, God can. Right, that, that's the way to think. She didn't question his power. She didn't question his character, even though she didn't understand his ways. Even when God promises, the, the, the promises are the most Unheard of, right? A virgin conceives that had never happened before, has never happened since. And scandalous sign, outside of wedlock, she's betrothed. Again, I know I've said this before, but who, imagine being Joseph trying to believe when Mary tells you that she's pregnant, it was the Holy Spirit. Okay, right? The only thing Mary says in essence really is, Amen, let, let it be to me according to your word. Why? Because Mary believed that nothing will be impossible with God. That statement isn't there. Mainly for you and I to imagine these amazing things that God could do. And he, he can, no question. The impossible thing God wants you to know he can do is our salvation, beloved. Our salvation. And when it comes to that, if we are not firm in faith, we will not be firm at all. 
it, 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 it's not that we give no honor to Mary. It's that it's what we do and do not honor her for. We don't honor her for her merit or worthiness. That's not why God came to her. That was the whole point. That he didn't come to somebody that looks the part. But she is little Mary full of grace. Because that's precisely what God overshadowed her with by his Holy Spirit. In the words of the Magnificat, she is called blessed. Why? Because of what God has done for her. Not because of what she is. He gave her faith. He gave her a song. He looked upon the humble estate of his servant and showed mercy to those who fear him and has helped all of Israel because the promise was made to Ahaz by his remembrance of his promise in Luke 1, 46 to 55. Through the unbelief of Ahaz the king and the belief of the Virgin Mary, our God works to save us according to To his promises. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Beloved, the reason God moves in such ways through the unbelief of a king, the simple faith of an obscure young lady, through the conception of a child in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, in a place too small to even be considered important in Israel, the prophet Micah says, is because he means to show us both his power and his love. If either one of those things is absent, there is no salvation. But when they converge, power and love in the coming of Jesus, when the fullness of the Godhead appears on earth, it means that God not only can keep his word, but that he most certainly will keep his word. And if he can do what is impossible, then even you and I can be saved. Beloved, don't miss the forest for the trees in this world as words that bring fear close in on us. Don't miss what God is still doing and will continue to do no matter how bad it gets, the impossible thing. Right? It's, it's no amazing thing if the Incredible Hulk picks up a refrigerator and throws it 100 yards. Right? So in that sense, it's no amazing thing if God makes a mountain crumble. But if sinners get saved, if we get redeemed, beloved, what can he not do? I hope everyone listening to this sermon remembers that truth. He can do the impossible, which means you and I can be saved. Look to Christ this Christmas and always. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful to you for your word, for your promise. It's all we have and so much more than we need. And so, Father, we praise you and we thank you for who you are, for what you've said, for what you've done. May we trust in you today. 
May all those who are bruised and broken, may all the rebels and the disobedient and the wicked hear and believe when they think it's not for them that that is precisely who this message is for. People like me, Father, I pray and ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us believing. Keep us faithful. For we look to you. Amen. Amen.